Welcome to the What Even Is podcast, the podcast where we get to interview experts about different topics that makes us wonder, what even is that? Or what even is that like? I'm your host, Donna Trunk. Let's get started. Today, we're answering what even is the Khmer Rouge with our guest who received his master's degree in Asian studies at Cornell University and his PhD in Southeast Asian languages and cultures at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. He is also a former associate director of the Cambodian Genocide Program at Yale University and is currently an associate teaching professor at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. And he has his own Wikipedia page, Dr. George Chigas. It's so interesting because not a lot of people know about the Khmer Rouge unless you are Cambodian yourself or you were surrounded by it. And I actually live in an area where there are a lot of Cambodians, so that's how I knew about it. So how did you get interested in it? Uh, me? Um, well, I- I'm from Lowell originally. So naturally, in the 1980s, when Cambodian and Southeast Asian refugees started arriving in Lowell, um, I became very interested in who they were and where they came from and why they arrived here. That was started, you know, that's 1985, let's say. So that's 35 years ago or almost 36 now, right? So I just started studying about it and it became my profession. It's interesting because when I was like looking at your kind of like a CV on your UMass Lowell page, your first publication came out in 1988. So it wasn't even that long after, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I got into it right away. I I went to the, worked in the refugee camps in Thailand and the Philippines, spent a good amount of time in Cambodia. So I went into it pretty quickly. It was a good time for me because I was, I was out of college I didn't really have a career plan yet in mind. And this happened, and it just happened to be at a time when I was, you know, very interested in something to do. And this was something that was very interesting to me. Right. And then I saw that you actually got your doctorate in Southeast Asian languages, right? Right. Yeah. So are you like, so do you know like Cambodian or Thai or Laos or Vietnamese or anything? I do speak Khmer fairly fluently. You know, I, I, I read it and write it and I teach Khmer here at UMass Lowell also. Oh, that's so cool. Mm. Is it like completely different from English? Uh, it's definitely different, completely different from English, right? Of course, yeah. Um, it's really different from all the other Asian languages, but it's close to Thai and Lao. My grandparents are from China, but then they ran away because like communism and stuff. So they actually ran through like Vietnam to Laos. So my mom, like my mom and my aunts and my aunt and uncles, they all speak Laos. So whenever I hear Khmer, I'm just like, wow, it actually sounds kind of like Laos, like the sounds and the tones and stuff. It sounds like Laos. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Okay, uh, so what was the Khmer Rouge? The Khmer Rouge, it means Red Khmer. And it was actually a name given to the Cambodian communists by Prince Nordadom Sihanouk, who was the head of state of Cambodia in the 1950s and 60s up until 1970. And it means basically, as I said, um, the communist Khmer. They didn't use that name. The communist Khmer, they called their country after they took power in 1975, Democratic Kampuchea. But the Khmer Rouge is still used today, that that word, and that's why you probably used it. it, But it's meant to refer to the communist government of Cambodia between the years of 1975 and 1979 when they took power. But it also refers to them during the 50s and 60s as they were fighting the civil war against the Cambodian government before they took power in April 1975. Right. So the Khmer Rouge is just like a political party, basically, right? 
Well, it, it, it really doesn't have a strict definition. It refers to the government, the leaders, the political party. For example, I should have also mentioned that after the Khmer Rouge were removed from power in 1979, many years later, beginning around 2003, there was the beginnings of an international trial um, that was sponsored by the United Nations. And those trials, even though they have a formal name, they're informally known as the Khmer, the Khmer Rouge trials. So that, that term is still used fairly frequently, even though it formally had no real strict meaning or definition. But it refers to the government, the leadership, the time period. People even say the Khmer Rouge time um, or the Pol Pot time. So it's used in different ways and doesn't really have a one particular strict meaning or definition. Okay, yeah. So like uh, growing up, because I told you I grew up with a lot of Cambodians, uh, what they would refer to the Khmer Rouge, I maybe the context of it, I just assumed it was like the genocide itself, but it actually isn't. It's just like the period of time that people refer as because certain people were in power. Well, again, like you said, you know, people did refer to it as the time of the genocide. So that's why you probably would have thought Khmer Rouge means the Cambodian genocide. And that's legitimate, you know, that I can understand why people would say that. So it, it, it basically has different meanings and different uses, but it refers to anything really related to the Cambodian communists who took power in 1975 and committed the genocide between 75 and 79. They were brought to trial beginning in the early 2000s in a hybrid tribunal that was sponsored by the United Nations in collaboration with the Cambodian government. Mm, okay. Before the Khmer Rouge went into power, how did Cambodia look beforehand? Well, that's a good question. And, you know, really to understand the Khmer Rouge, it's useful and in fact, really important to have a sense of Cambodian cultural history from a long-term perspective. It's hard to really understand a short period of time, like the Cambodian genocide, which was just approximately four-year period, uh, without looking at Cambodian history from a long-term perspective. So let me just quickly review what Cambodian cultural history was like. It's very long. It goes back really about 4,000 years. And I would say we could divide that 4,000 years into roughly three different eras. One is the prehistoric era. That would be about from 1500 or maybe even as far back as 2000 before the current era until the beginning of the current era, which we call years, you know, the beginning of the, well, in, in, the, in the Western calendar, we call it like the year Christ was born, years, year zero. But that first period of time, approximately 1500 to 2000 years before the current era, the Khmer people were inhabiting the territory that we now refer to as Cambodia. And during that 2000 years, Cambodian culture and civilization was really established. You know, the, the people, the Khmer people who lived there responded mainly to the climate and the geography to determine how they were going to live. Now, since Cambodia is a tropical country with a monsoon climate, meaning there's a, a rainy season when it rains almost every day for a long period of time, for a short period each day, but it, there's a rainy part of the year, then there's a dry part of the year. And during the dry part of the year, it's part of it's very hot and part of it's a bit cooler. So in response to that climate and in response to the geography, um, and the geography we should mention is mainly there are two main elements that everybody should know who wants to understand Cambodian culture, and that there's a very big lake in the middle of the country of Cambodia 
called the Tonlisap Lake. It's a freshwater lake, but it's, it's huge. It's very large. And it's fed by the Mekong River, the 10th largest river in the world, which begins up in China in the Himalayan mountains. And that lake really provides the main source of fish and protein in the Cambodian diet. The other source of food is the rice that people grew. And because of the tropical climate and the, and the rainy season, the Khmer people started to grow what's known as wet rice. You can grow rice. Rice is just a form of grass. You can grow rice in a dry field, but there's also a form of rice that grows in a, a rice paddy, which is full of water. So the Khmer people basically started to live in this climate and in, in this particular geographic location by farming wet rice, by fit, learning how to fish and catching fish and eating fish. They built stilt houses because houses on the ground would have flooded during the rainy season. So people learned how to build stilt houses that protected them from the floods, but also protected them from predators. But it also had other important uses like natural ventilation because the air would flow beneath the house and provide natural ventilation during the hot season, especially, and shade beneath the house. And people also started to worship the spirits of ancestors, which people still do. In fact, all of the things, all of the things that I just mentioned, the Khmer people still do today. They still live in stilt houses in the countryside. They still farm wet rice. Um, they still eat a lot of fish. Um, and they still pray to ancestor spirits and believe that ancestor spirits affect their own lives, their daily lives. So that's kind of the first era of Cambodian cultural history, that 2000 year period where basically the baseline of Cambodian culture was defined. Then we have another era that begins around at the beginning of the current era, the first century of the current era, when we have the arrival of the first foreign influence. Now it's important to point out that during that first era that I was just talking about before the current era, there was no contact with any foreign influence. The Khmer people basically defined who they were on their own. So it was a very well-defined sense of what it means to be Khmer. We live in stilt houses, we pray to spirits, we farm wet rice, we, we eat a lot of fish. We also farm animals like chickens and pigs and cattle and things like that. But with the beginning of the current era, we have the arrival of the first foreign influence, which came from India. Indian traders were coming back and forth between China and India. And because of the monsoon season, they would stop in Cambodia, waiting for the winds to move in the right direction so they could continue on to ports in China. Well, sometimes they'd have to wait for three and four, five months at a time. And during that time, they interacted with the Khmer people who lived in that area. And this began a very long period of Indian cultural influence, which really began in that first century of the current era and went all the way up to the ninth century into the 800s. And it was a very profound influence. And from India, the Khmer people got many things that they, they, they borrowed a lot of ideas and a lot of technology. The Khmer people didn't have a writing system until the Indians arrived. So they took Sanskrit and used that and adapted that to create their own writing system to be able to write down the Khmer language. They also adopted some of the Indian religions, primarily beginning with Hinduism. So the worship of the Hindu gods like Vishnu and uh, Shiva especially, they also learned a lot of Indian technology, especially astrology. And finally, they also 
adopted a lot of the Indian ideas about architecture. And that kind of mixed in with religion because religious architecture is the most famous that still exists today in Cambodia. So we've all heard of the Angkor Wat and some of the other stone temples in Cambodia. Well, the design, the idea for those design of those temples really came from Hindu religion and Indian ideas of, of architecture. But it's very important to emphasize that the Khmer people didn't just copy these Indian ideas, they adapted and modified them to reflect who they were, to answer the question, what does it mean to be Khmer now? So if you look at Angkor Wat, you'll see similarities, some general similarities with temples back in India, but you'll see that the specific artistry and aesthetic is very different and is very distinctly Khmer. You automatically know when you look at the statuary and you look at the architecture that that's not Indian, it's, it's Khmer. But some of the basic ideas, like the religion of Hinduism, which began in India, and Buddhism, which also began in India, they were adopted and integrated into the existing Khmer culture, the culture that had existed before the arrival of the Indians. Just one example, Hinduism, the worship of Shiva, who resides in a mountain, was very similar to the worship of ancestor spirits that the Khmer people already believed in, who were believed to inhabit mountains or hills. So it became very easy for the Khmer people to see a similarity and to have a reason for integrating that new idea into their existing culture. So that influence lasted about 800 years from the beginning of the Christian era or the current era, the first century, and really was very strong all the way until, well, the influence still exists today, but it really kind of a new chapter within that era begins in, in around the beginning of the 19th century. The date we use is 802. That's when the, the Cambodian Empire began. That's when Indian influence didn't have such a strong impact because the Khmer people were already building their own empire. And they moved the center of the kingdom north again. It used to be on the, ocean, on the, on the coast where the Indian traders would, would meet them moved it north to that great lake that I told you about, the Tonali Sap, and they started a whole new way of living. And this new way of living basically revolved around the control of water and using the great lake that floods every rainy season and the rivers that feed that lake to creating a massive irrigation system. Again, a lot of these ideas were borrowed from India in Indian technology about how to control water and build these irrigation systems. And in fact, that's what the Angkor period is. It's a period of using those Indian ideas to create new examples of Cambodian cultural production, like new temple, other, you know, like Angkor Wat and the other stone temples and, and many other things, language and literature that borrowed from India, but now the Khmer were really expressing themselves in a new really dynamic way. It was an explosion of new Cambodian cultural production during this period of time that we call the Angkor period, which is looked at as sort of the, the golden era of Cambodian cultural history. And as I said, it begins at the beginning of the ninth century, around 802, and it lasts for 600 years until around the middle of the 15th century, and the date we use is 1431 generally. And during that 600 years, that's when all of those stone temples that we you know, people, two million people every year go to visit Angkor Wat and, and the hundreds of other stone temples around it, including the Bayan and there's many, many others. 1431 then kind of begins another chapter within that period of Indian influence 
when there's a kind of a decline in Cambodian territory. During that Angkor period, Cambodian territory expanded greatly. And Cambodian territory well, that was under control of the Cambodian kings um, was the greatest that it had ever and has ever been. Um, and it included much of what is currently Thailand, what is currently um, Vietnam and Southern Laos. Cambodian kings were conquerors and builders. They built stone temples, they built highways, they built hospitals and they conquered territory. And every time they conquered new territory, they acquired new population and new slaves and new resources to build and continue to build their empire. And because they had these massive irrigation systems, they were able to grow a surplus amount of rice that was needed to feed a growing army and a growing number of builders to build these temples because they couldn't spend their time growing rice because they were busy either fighting wars or building temples. So you had to be able to produce a surplus of rice to enable to support that huge and growing population. And that period that goes from 1431, that ends around 1863, when there's a, a decrease of Cambodian territory to when Cambodian territory almost disappears because the rival kingdoms to the west in Siam, or what do we now call Thailand, and to the east in Vietnam, were growing in power as the Cambodian kings were decreasing in power. There are many possible reasons for the decrease of power of the Cambodian kings. It could have been a disease, or it could have been drought, problems with the irrigation system, many possibilities. But the result was that Cambodian territory almost disappeared by 1863. And that really ends that second chapter, that second era of Cambodian cultural history. Again, the first one was when the Khmer people lived without any foreign influence about 1,500 or 2,000 years before the current era. And the second one was from the beginning of the current era all the way until 1863. So almost you know, another 1,800, 900 years. And then we begin a brand new period. And this is important for understanding the Khmer Rouge. It's all important for understanding the Khmer Rouge, really, everything that I've talked about. But this next era of Cambodian cultural history is extremely important as well. This is when we have a new foreign cultural influence coming to Cambodia. This time it comes from the West, from specifically France. And because Cambodian territory had almost disappeared during that period of time, um, after the Angkor Empire was decreasing in power between 1431 and 1863, the, the Cambodian kings pleaded really with the French to come and save them from the Thai and the Vietnamese so their country wasn't completely swallowed by their two neighbors. And the French finally agreed to do it. They didn't do it very willingly at, at the beginning because it's very expensive to come in and create a new colony. Which is, which is what Cambodia became, a French colony. It takes a lot of resources, a lot of people, a lot of time, a lot of effort to create a new, a new colony that's under your power. But the French finally decided to do it, mainly because they thought Cambodia had perhaps mineral resources or a waterway, highway to, to China for doing trade. Um, they found that th those things weren't true, but the French did arrive. And when they did arrive in 1863, they found the, the Cambodian stone temples, which they found very interesting, and they spent the rest of the 90 years that they were in Cambodia really studying those temples intently. And much of what we know about the Cambodian temples comes from that period of time, um, what we initially knew especially. But when the French came, they were a colonizing force. Unlike India, India really never tried to enforce its culture on the Khmer people. The Khmer people basically were free to take what they wanted 
and, and modify that and, and reject things that they didn't like. But under the French, the Khmer people were forced to basically become copies of France. And the French created their own education system, their own roads, their cities, their, even their own postal system. They basically turned the Khmer people into subjects of the French emperor and the French prime minister. And this is where the Khmer Rouge really comes into play here, because this is when Cambodian nationalism began, just as it did in any other country around the world that had been colonized. And by in the 19th or 18th and 19th centuries, most countries around the world, many of them, if you weren't an empire, you were probably colonized by an imperial power, like the Dutch, like the English, like the French, like the Spanish, the Portuguese as well. And in response to that, eventually, we have what, what we now consider as nationalism. This is the, the rejection of being a subject of an empire, a colonial empire, and wanting to be free and independent of that control. And this is when Pol Pot, the leader of the Khmer Rouge, grows up. He grows up during this emergence of Cambodian nationalism. He was born, we think, in 1925, although it's, that's not a firm date. It's somewhere in that time period, 1925 or possibly as late as 1928, but sometime within that three-year time, time frame. The French were in Cambodia from 1863 to 1953. In 1953, Cambodia won independence from the French, and the French left what they called Indochina, which included Cambodia, Vietnam, and Laos. So as Pol Pot, his original name was, his natural name was Salat Sa, Sa uh, but he, his um, communist, let's call it, name was Pol Pot when he took power. He grew up during this time of strong nationalism, but he also grew up under the French, because as I said, the French didn't leave Cambodia until 1953. And so he was probably close to 30 years old before the French had left. So he grew up and matured under French authority. And he grew up to hate that authority. And that was very much behind a lot of his thinking when he finally took power in 1975. Now, it should be mentioned that Pol Pot, or Salat Sah, Saw, his actual name, you know, grew up as part of what we would call the Khmer elite. He had a brother and cousin who lived in the royal palace, and he went to live with them when he was very young, six years old. He went to school as a young boy, starting around seven or eight at the Buddhist temple in the capital city, Phnom Penh. He later on went to a, a French high school. And then he finally later on went on to a French engineering university in Paris before returning to Cambodia in 1953, right as Cambodia was becoming independent. While he was in France studying at the university, that at that time, communism was sweeping the world. New communist revolutions were taking over. And Mao, Mao Zedong, and Joseph Stalin and, and the Soviet Union were very popular among young nationalists like Salat Saw and all of his Cambodian friends that were also studying with him in France. And people were, had study groups where they read Marx and Lenin, and they studied the lives of of Mao and Stalin, and they basically became radicalized. And I guess that's what we would call it today. They became radicalized and believed that the only way forward for, for Cambodia is for the workers to control everything, not the elite, which is very ironic since Pol Pot or Salat Sa came from 
really the elite members of Cambodian society. But um, he wouldn't be the first uh, revolutionary that came from the group that he was opposing. But these radicalized Khmer nationalists, they went back to Cambodia in 1953, and that's when they really began their revolution. And they, they joined the Indo-Chinese Communist Party, um, which was basically under the North Vietnamese, the Viet Minh. And we won't go into what happened in Vietnam because it would be too long a digression. But let's just say that the Vietnamese communists had a strong influence over the Cambodian communists as they were just starting out and developing. But there's a long historical enemy relationship between the Cambodians and the Vietnamese that goes way back before this period of time. But at that time, the Vietnamese communists were very influential to the starting of the Cambodian Communist Party. And that's what Pol Pot at that time, again, Salat saw, and his friends from Paris that studied with him, these two in particular, Kyu Sompan and Ian Sari, who later became the head of state and the foreign minister of the Khmer Rouge, they studied with him. But other people like Nguyen Chia, who was also, was also known as brother number two, those were kind of the core members of the Khmer Rouge leadership. They joined together and they said, we need to have a complete revolution. And they started this, this fight in the, in, the, in the 50s, just as Cambodia was becoming independent. But really throughout the 50s and into the 60s, the Khmer Rouge had very little support from the people in the countryside. People were fairly happy with the way things were. Now that there was independence, their favorite king, Norodom Sihanouk, was in power. He was seen as a god to many people in the countryside, as a god king, a diva raja. He was admired and adored and, and really worshipped by most of the people in the countryside. So the Cambodian communists like Pol Pot, Salat Sar or Pol Pot and his other nationalists had a lot of, you know, not had a hard time of convincing the people in the countryside to join this revolution that they had in mind. And they had very small following. But during that time is when Norodom Sihanouk, the head of state, called them the Khmer Rouge. He named them the Khmer Rouge, the Cambodian communists. They were an issue. They were a problem, but not a big problem. Sihanouk was able to easily control them and contain them. But that all changed in the late 60s and the early 70s. Two things happened that made the Khmer Rouge transform from a very small, weak guerrilla movement, which really had no chance of winning a, a revolution into a very large, strong, powerful army that eventually did win the revolution. The two things that happened was first, the bombing of Cambodia by the United States, which started in the late 1960s under Richard Nixon in the United States and Henry Kissinger, his national security advisor. And they were losing the war in Vietnam. Again, we can't really go into the details of that in the time that we have, but the Americans who supported South Vietnam, the non-communists, were losing the war against North Vietnam under Ho Chi Minh, which was the communist side of that civil war that was going on in Vietnam. And they decided that one of the problems was the North Vietnamese were bringing troops and ammunitions through Cambodia along its eastern border with Vietnam, along what was called the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And th they were able to attack the South Vietnamese troops from behind using these troops and ammunition and artillery that they snuck through Cambodia and into South Vietnam. So the United States said, the only way we can stop that 
is if we bomb these supply routes, which, as I said, was called the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And at that time, in the late 1960s, it wasn't like today, where bombing can be fairly accurate. In those days, they used what were called B-52 bombers that dropped their payload of bombs from 30,000 feet and literally just emptied the bottom of the fuselage of the, of the large B-52. And these bombs just scattered in, in very wide, very wide swath of destruction. And in the process, of course, many bombs flew many miles off target and would land in people's farms and villages and on their homes in thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of, of Khmer civilians. And including in Laos, by the way, it wasn't just Cambodia, and in Laos and in Vietnam, this bombing killed hundreds of thousands of civilians. That was the first thing that brought more and more people to the side of the Khmer Rouge. Because when Wait, I have a question. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um. So going back to like the bombing. So like the the bombing itself wasn't meant to land in like Laos or Cambodia. It was meant to hit Vietnam. Well, no, it was meant to land in in Cambodia, but it was meant you know it was meant to land along the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which is right along the border with Vietnam. And many of the bombs did land along that trail, but. This was an illegal bombing. So, Don, I think maybe your question has to do with, was the United States purposefully targeting Cambodia? Well, I, I think it's pretty clear that Nixon and Kissinger really didn't care if civilians died in the process of this bombing. All they really cared about was winning this war in Vietnam. And if it meant that some Cambodian civilians or Laotian civilians had to die in the process, this was part of the, you know, what they call today, horrifically called today, as collateral damage, right? They, did, they give it a, a very sanitized name like that. But that, what collateral damage really means is innocent civilians die unnecessarily and without justice, unjustly. So... To answer your question, the, the bombing uh, was meant to land in Cambodia, was meant to land in Laos, and it had its primary target of the supply routes. But in addition to the, the primary target, it also hit many, many you know, targets or areas that weren't specifically targeted. And this is what brought now thousands of new recruits to the Khmer Rouge guerrilla forces. Now, the Khmer Rouge went from a, a very weak army to a much stronger army because these farmers whose homes were bombed or their farms were bombed, they had nothing left. They had no choice. So when the Khmer Rouge came and said, now, will you join our army? They said, yes, because I have nothing left. And they said, join our army and we'll get rid of the Americans. That's what they were trying to do, to get rid of the Americans, mainly. Mm. Um, so that's the first thing. The second main thing is in 1970, the United States was not happy with Notre Dame Sihanouk because he was not giving the American army access to Cambodia to store troops, to have airfields, to use it as a base for its war against North Vietnam because Notre Dame Sihanouk was supposedly trying to stay, at least it was, it was considering itself a non-aligned nation. In other words, it was saying we're not on either side. And it, groomed, it joined a group of countries, including Indonesia and other countries that said, we are not on either side in this Cold War, because at this time, 
It was considered the Cold War period between the communist forces, China and Soviet Union on one side, and the non-communists, or the, we say, I guess, capitalist or um, democratic countries on the other side, led by the United States and, and Western Europe countries like France and England. But these non-aligned countries, including Cambodia, said, we're not on either side. But really, Cambodia was, and it looked like Sihanouk, was thinking that the communists are going to win this war in Vietnam. So I'm going to lean towards that side a little bit. And he kind of turned a blind eye to Ho Chi Minh and the supply chain, the supply routes that were coming through Cambodia. He knew about them, and he didn't do much to stop them. And this is what really upset the American government under under. Um, Nixon and, and Kissinger. So for various reasons, and possibly with U.S. support, Sihanouk was taken away from power, taken out of power in a bloodless coup, coup d'etat. And he was removed from power by one of his own generals by the name of Lanal in ni- March 1970, when Sihanouk was out of the country. So he was never able to come back to Cambodia because he was removed from power. So what he did was from China, he joined the Khmer Rouge. He went into the jungle, and there are pictures of him hugging Pol Pot and Kyu Sumpan, who I mentioned before, who was another one of the Khmer Rouge leaders, and joining the Khmer Rouge. So now we have a second factor for people to want to join the Khmer Rouge. The first is the bombing that I mentioned. Now their former god king, Sihanouk, Notre Dame Sihanouk, is now a member of the Khmer Rouge. And Sihanouk would get on the Khmer Rouge radio and said, help me, join me and the Khmer Rouge, join this army and we'll get rid of the Americans and their puppet government in Phnom Penh under General Lanal. Well, with that support, the Khmer Rouge army grew very quickly into a very large, strong force with support from China. China was very happy to support the Khmer Rouge and provide the ammunition and material supplies that they needed. So really from 70 to 75 is when we begin the real civil war in Cambodia between the Khmer Rouge with Pol Pot as its head, its leader, and Sihanouk as its kind of figurehead, someone who represents the Khmer Rouge to the population. And within five years, but by April 1975, the Khmer Rouge take over more and more territory in Cambodia until they finally surround the capital city Phnom Penh. And on April 17th, 1975, they take power and they remove the Americans from Phnom Penh. They have to leave Phnom Penh and they also leave Vietnam. The Vietnamese and the Cambodians both won their revolutions in the same year and in the same month. They both won their revolutions in April 1975. It just turned out the Khmer Revolution won their revolution about two weeks ahead of the Vietnamese, which was a point of pride among among the Khmer Rouge, as a matter of fact. But the Americans had to leave Southeast Asia completely. They lost the war in Vietnam, and they had to leave Cambodia, and they basically left in disgrace after losing really both wars, but mainly the war in Vietnam. And the Khmer Rouge took over Cambodia in April 17, 1975, and that begins what we call the Cambodian genocide, the three years and eight months and 20 days until January 7th, 1979, when officially the Khmer Rouge were removed from power. Okay, let me tell you, that was all so very interesting. I was 
I was immersed in that. There's a lot of stuff that I didn't know about all of that. Well, I also don't really know the whole history of like Cambodia like that, but it's like good to like see how it all played out. And it's really interesting that they actually asked the French to come in and like help mm-hmm. them. Well, yeah. Oh my God. Okay, cool. Thank you. We'll get back to my interview with Dr. Chigas in just a moment. I just wanted to say thank you from the bottom of my heart for supporting and listening to this podcast. And also don't forget to rate, review, and follow this podcast to hear the latest episodes. Okay, we can go back to the episode now. Thank you. Okay, so what was like Paul Pot's intention for the Khmer Rouge? Like in terms of its people and how he wanted like his country to look like? That's a very good question. And that's a good segue into the really the next period after the Khmer Rouge take power. So what did they do? What did Pol Pot plan for the country? What did he envision the country looking like and being, just as you just asked? Well, as we were saying before, it was a very radical revolution. They wanted to do everything very, very quickly and all at once. Now, to understand what the Khmer Rouge were trying to do, we have to go back to that period of colonial period under the French. And Pol Pot saw anything that came from the West, specifically France, but also the United States, anything from the West is basically poisoning true Khmer culture. And to Pol Pot, true Khmer culture really goes back to that first era that I was talking about, before the current era, that 2000 years when the Khmer people lived by themselves without any foreign influence, and they farmed rice, they caught fish to eat, they lived in stilt houses, They lived very simple lives. And Pol Pot, basically, from what we know, envisioned that as the pure Khmer. And most of what comes after that is is something that corrupts it. Now, he didn't really specifically have any particular attempt to erase Indian influence, although that's true. But the very specific thing that he wanted to erase from the current Khmer culture in 1975, when he took power, was all the Western influence. But basically, it's true that he wanted to erase all the foreign influence and get back to that pure initial Khmer that I was talking about at the very beginning of our talk, where people lived in stilt houses and and farmed wet rice and basically irrigated the water so they could produce a surplus of rice, which is what they did during that encore period. So he did kind of look to the Encore period as well as a period of pure Khmer culture, which it kind of, you can see how that is because it's really after that Indian period of strong Indian influence when the Khmer kind of on their own now create their own strong, huge empire of builder warrior kings. Even though a lot of what they did was influenced by Indian culture, but that was something that Pol Pot looked to as Khmer ingenuity and genius for building these irrigation systems that enabled them to grow so much rice. Because it took a lot of rice to create that Angkor Empire. Because you have to feed all of those soldiers and you have to feed all of those workmen and people who build the temples and build the roads and everything else that, that they were doing as warriors and builders. So Pol Pot looked to those two things as the goals of his revolution, to bring the Khmer people back to this pure existence of living on the land, but also the genius of being masters of the water and being able to control water and grow a surplus of rice that would enable 
the country again to have another kind of Angkor empire where they would grow as builders and conquerors. So that was the main goals of the Khmer Rouge when they took power, turn everybody into farmers again. So at that time in 1975, April 1975, because of all the war and fighting that had taken place, especially since 1970, as you remember, after the bombing started and Sihanouk joined the Khmer Rouge, most people couldn't live on their farms anymore. It was too dangerous. There was too much fighting. There was too much bombing. It wasn't safe. So millions of people fled to the cities from the countryside. And the city of Phnom Penh, for example, grew in size about fourfold. Before the fighting started, the population was about approximately 500,000. By the time the Khmer Rouge took power in 1975, the population was about 2 million. Now, the total population of Cambodia at that time was only around 8 million. You know, you compare that to Vietnam, which was probably like 70 million. Um, the population of Cambodia was relatively small. But one quarter of that population lived in, or, or more, lived in the cities, not only Phnom Penh, but in the, the provincial cities as well, in Battambang and Kampong the various other provinces. So the first thing Pol Pot did was say, we've got to get everybody out of the cities and into the countryside to start farming rice. Because that was his number one goal, to grow as much rice as possible, just like they did under the Angkor Empire. So they can have a surplus of rice, which they will use to feed an army and all of the people who are going to work in, in what would be the new factories and the new manufacturing. But the first step was to become masters of the water and to grow a surplus of rice. To do that, you have to turn everybody again into a rice farmer, which means everybody who lived in the cities were evacuated. And that was the first thing that the Khmer Rouge did. And that's the thing that most people talk about when you talk about the Cambodian genocide was that being the exodus from the cities, especially Phnom Penh, into the countryside at gunpoint, it wasn't voluntary. You were forced out immediately. You, didn't, you weren't even given any time to get ready and to, to prepare for this journey. You were basically forced out of your house and you were relocated into work camps. And the work camps were basically under different district leaders. And each district leader would have its, its population under its control and their number one uh, activity was creating the irrigation systems that would enable them to produce as much rice as possible. So most people were involved either in building canals and dams and different uh, ways of irrigating water. So building them by hand, by the way, because the Khmer Rouge didn't want to use any Western technology. Anything Western was not allowed. In fact, that was one of their main ideological goals because the purpose of this whole revolution was to remove any Western influence. So no Western technology, we were getting back to basics. So everything was done by hand. People dug all the earth for the dams and in the irrigation systems by hand. They moved the dirt by hand. They used you know, just primitive tools to do all of this work. No modern technology or, or machine or, or earth movers or anything else which existed, but they weren't going to use them. So people are either involved in building these irrigation systems or farming the rice using that water. Now, right away, the revolution runs into serious problems. 
because the irrigation systems are designed by people who don't know what they're doing. Because Pol Pot rejected anything Western, anybody who was an engineer with a Western engineering degree who grew up under the French period wasn't allowed to run the operation. Just the people who were part of the revolution from the 50s and 60s who had, no, had very little educational background and certainly no technical background. So many of these irrigation systems, the building of the dams and the canals, they were built improperly. They didn't work correctly. The dams would break. The irrigation systems wouldn't work properly. And if you don't have water, you can't grow wet rice. So since the irrigation systems weren't functioning properly, there wasn't enough water to grow the extra surplus rice that the Khmer Rouge leadership under Pol Pot expected all of these district leaders to grow. And that was a problem. When the rice harvest was below expectations, they had a certain quota. Each village, each district had said, you have to grow what, what they said was three tons of rice per hectare of land. That was sort of the golden rule, three tons of rice per hectare of land. But if you only grew one ton, or one and a half tons. The Khmer Rouge leadership would say, what's wrong with your village? Aren't they working hard enough? Aren't they you know, committed to the revolution? Are they perhaps counter-revolutionaries in that village who aren't giving their loyalty to the revolution? And they started to blame people of being counter-revolutionaries when the rice harvest was insufficient, was failing. They didn't look and say, Maybe the design of the irrigation systems were incorrect. The Khmer Rouge had this idea that everything they did was right. They could do no wrong because they, they were going off this idea. We just defeated the Americans. If we can defeat the Americans and force them to leave Cambodia, we must know what we're doing. So no one dared to say, oh, the, the dam was, was poorly designed or the irrigation system was poorly designed. What the village and the district leaders would say was, Yes, we, we might have counter-revolutionaries in our village. We'll find out who they are, arrest them, and torture them, and then execute them. That's number one. Number two, the, the village and the district leaders started to feed the people less rice because if they wanted to be able to deliver more rice to the leadership, because basically the leadership would come with their trucks and they say, where's your rice? And they want to have you know, three tons of rice per hectare to load onto those trucks because the Cameroons took that rice, sent it to China, so China would send back more guns and ammunition because the Cameroons wanted to build up their army. When the district leaders didn't have enough rice to give to the Cameroons leadership when they brought their trucks to the village, basically they started to feed the people less so they would be able to keep more to give to the leadership. So people started to starve very quickly. Within a year or two years, people were starting to die of starvation because they were forced to work harder to produce more rice, but they were fed less. And because there were no hospitals, because the Khmer Rouge rejected any Western medicine, the only kind of medicine people were allowed to use was like herbs and natural kind of tr traditional medicines. People started to die of simple diseases that would be easily cured with penicillin or some kind of basic medical treatment. So really starting by the second year of the revolution, 1976, 1977, especially when the harvest was getting less and less and more and more people were dying and dying and more and more people were accused of being counter-revolutionaries and arrested and tortured and forced to confess of being counter-revolutionaries, it started to snowball. 
more and more and more people started to die of disease mostly and starvation as well and execution until finally by 1978, everything fell apart and the Khmer Rouge revolution failed. And the Vietnamese, who the Khmer Rouge were trying to fight with the guns that were coming from China, invaded the country in December 1978 and very easily took over Cambodia in a matter of weeks. It only took them a couple of weeks, really, to push through Cambodia with their tanks and their warplanes, push the Khmer Rouge out of the country, remove them from power, and push them to the border with Thailand, where they fled to hide in the mountains, where they stayed. And that was the end of the genocide. And at the end of it, one quarter of the population had died of starvation, disease, and execution. About 2 million out of the 8 million people had died as a result of that. And there's very few Cambodian survivors who don't have one or two or three or more family members who died during that period that they call the Pol Pot time or the Khmer Rouge time or the Cambodian genocide, as we call it now. Uh, yeah. So one question, executions, because um, they're like when I was like researching it, they mentioned like the killing fields. Like, were they killing specific types of people or... Well, yes, and it gets back to what we're talking about, erasing any Western influence. So when the rice harvest was failing and the Khmer Rouge leadership was accusing the district leaders of not producing enough rice and blaming it on counter-revolutionaries or what they called enemies of the people, the district and village leaders had to identify who are these enemies that are causing this problem. Because as I said, they didn't blame it on their own you know, poor management and poor engineering. They blamed it on the people for being counter-revolutionaries or enemies of the revolution. So who did they identify? Well, they started to look for signs of background. Let's see, the, the most obvious people who would be counter-revolutionaries were people with, who lived in the cities, who were educated in the French schools, who spoke a foreign language, especially French, who perhaps were not farmers before they grew up in the cities. So the Chinese who are typically of you know, merchants in, in the cities, and if they look at your hands and if you had soft hands and it looked like you weren't a farmer growing up, that means if you lived in the city, it was a good chance you might be a counter-revolutionary because you don't want to work hard as a, as a rice farmer. You want to go back to your old life as a city dweller. And anybody who wanted that old life that it was like under under the French or under Sihanouk during the 50s and 60s, they were seen as people who were not true to the peasant revolution, true to the ideology of the Khmer Rouge. So people who showed either physical or behavioral signs of having that kind of background were the first ones to be targeted by the people who were from peasant backgrounds. And they knew very easily who was a true peasant and who was previously, you know, just like now you can see who's from the countryside and who's from the city. You know, that was very easy to identify. And if you were one of those people who look like they're not a true peasant, you were probably closely observed and spied upon. And if they saw that, yes, their suspicion was right, you'd be arrested. And sometimes even people who were peasants were arrested. It spun out of control so that there really wasn't a clear logic or reason why you might be arrested and taken away. It became so random that 
everybody was afraid of being arrested, even if you were a peasant farmer from before, but especially if you came from the city and you had to hide your, your background. If you were a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer or even a taxi driver in the city, you know, those people would be seen as possibly counter-revolutionaries. But certainly anybody with a professional background or anything above, you know, a basic education. Okay, okay, okay. So say if you wanted to escape the Khmer Rouge, would you be able to do that during this time period? A lot of people did. A lot of people did escape during the, during the revolutionary period. It wasn't easy. It was very difficult uh, because you had to, you know, everybody was weak because of the starvation. The Khmer Rouge soldiers were patrolling everywhere, looking for people who were trying to escape, but many people did. In fact, the people who came back in 1978 and 79 with the Vietnamese forces were former Khmer Rouge who escaped to Vietnam and then came back to Cambodia. And the other people actually now who are in power under the current prime minister, Hun Sen. But um, so many people did, and some people escaped to Thailand, some people escaped to Vietnam. But there were many people who did, but I would say it was not easy. It was difficult and very dangerous. Mm, Yeah, that makes sense. So talking about like the aftermath of the Khmer Rouge, so you said the prosecution started in 2003, right? That's when the first planning for the trials started, the negotiations. It was a long process. So the first trial itself didn't begin until 2006. Oh, did anyone ever get prosecuted for this? Oh, yeah, yeah. So the first case was against the commander of the main Khmer Rouge Torture and Extermination Center, which is well known. It's called Tulslang, or at that time it was called S21. And this is where approximately 15,000 people were brought and tortured, forced to confess to crimes, and then executed, and then buried in a mass grave. The head of that torture center, Kankek Iu, or his, his guerrilla name was Duk, Duk was the first person to be uh, arrested and brought to trial, and then he was convicted of crimes against humanity and convicted to life in prison. So talking about the S21, um, you said that there's a lot, it was like a torture camp. Is this for the people that they thought were like counter-revolutionaries? Exactly. And usually higher ranking. Because there were many prisons and torture centers all around the country. But S21 was, was reserved for, for example, village chiefs or, or district leaders and other more high ranking of the Khmer Rouge because they started killing their own members, too. It wasn't just the population. S21 was kind of reserved for higher-ranking members of the Khmer Rouge, including the cadres, you know, the members of the army and, and the leadership of the district, the village, and the you know, zone leaderships who were seen as counter-revolutionaries, traitors. Mm, and then there was, like, a lot of them that they thought were counter-revolutionaries. They were just like, okay... Like, you're gone now. Well, and the thing is, when they arrested, for example, a village leader, they would also arrest his family. So his wife and his children, because the Khmer Rouge had a saying, you know, if you want to remove the weed, you have to remove it by the roots. So it wasn't enough just to move, remove the one person. You had to go and get all of the roots because they believed that the wife or the children would try to revenge the father's arrest and extermination would become counter-revolutionaries as well. So if they brought in 
one person who was, they, they believe was a counter-revolutionary, then they brought in his whole family. And then what the Khmer Rouge did, would do, the interrogators in a place like S21, they would say, who's in your string? Who's in your Kasai? Kasai is the Khmer word for string. And that's what the Khmer Rouge called the, the line of people who were involved in their particular counter-revolutionary activities. So uh, under torture, these people who were arrested would just name, start naming people because they were being tortured. And to stop the torture, they would just start naming people. And, and, the, and the interrogator would keep a list of all of these names. And then all of those people would be arrested, even though they may have nothing to do with this person that initially gave their name. He just somehow knew their name. And then they would be arrested. They would give names. And then it became just exponentially greater and greater. That's why even though you know, it may start from just three or four people who they believe to be traitors, the number quickly expanded exponentially. And that's why so many people died so quickly at these torture centers like S21. Mm, okay. Um, that's so sad. Uh, so what is the aftermath, uh, the aftermath of the Khmer Rouge? Like how is Cambodia today and how is it rebuilding itself? Because that was like a whole society thing. But now mm-hmm. how are they today? Yeah, well, that's a very complicated question. That would require a lot of discussion. The one thing that I would just say about this, and it's very complicated and, and it's really too involved to really describe in a, in a short period of time. But let's just say the Cold War finally ended in the end of the 1980s, um, about 10 years after the Khmer Rouge were removed from power. Remember the Khmer Rouge moved from power in 1979. And about eight, 1989, the Cold War ended. And things changed in Cambodia and in Vietnam and around the world. End of the Cold War meant the collapse of the Soviet Union. And that changed everything with the way the United States and China and now Russia and interacted. And because of that change, Cambodia became part of a peace process because after the, the Khmer Rouge were removed from power, those 10 years that I just mentioned, 79 to 89, there was a civil war between the Vietnamese army that came into Cambodia and removed the Khmer Rouge from power and the other forces that were on the Thai border that included the Khmer Rouge, but also Notre Dame Sihanouk and his son and other nationalist forces. There was a 10 year long civil war after the end of the Khmer Rouge from 79 to 89. But with the end of the Cold War in 1989, that civil war ended because that, that civil war was really what's called a proxy war during the Cold War. On one side was supported by the Soviet Union, that was the Vietnamese side, and then one side was supported by the United States and its allies, that was the Khmer Rouge and the Nationalists and Sihanouk side that was fighting against it. When the Khmer Rouge ended and the Soviet Union collapsed, both sides said, okay, there's no more proxy wars. And the Vietnamese troops left Cambodia and they had what was called the peace process that began in 1989 and it ended in 1991 with what was called, what is now called the Paris Peace Accords, which were signed in 1991 by all sides. And the Paris Peace Accords said, okay, now Cambodia is going to become a democracy because it was a communist country under Pol Pot and then it was a communist country under the Vietnamese installed government of Hun Sen. But now we're going to have elections and become a democratic country. So those elections were scheduled for May 1993. And those were the first elections that took place after the Khmer Rouge period. 
So we're looking at now from 1993 until 2021 now, right? So that's nine years plus 21 years. That's, is that how many years? Yeah, but that's, let's see. Actually, that's seven years plus 21 years. So that's 28 years. It'll be 30 years in 2023. So it's, it's you know, 28 years now since that time. And Cambodia has basically undergone many, many changes. It's supposed to be a democratic country. And on paper, it is a multi-party democracy. But in practice and in reality, it's a one-party authoritarian rule under the same person who was brought in by the Vietnamese in 1979, Mr. Hun Sen, who was the prime minister. So Cambodia today is a, an authoritarian democracy. Um, they still have elections, but it's called an illiberal de- democracy. In other words, there's very little, in fact, d- less and less freedom of speech or human rights, and it's more and more authoritarian one-party st- system. Even though it's not communist, it behaves a lot like a communist country or an authoritarian ruled country. The other thing to note about the way Cambodia is today is that it's still a, a developing country. It's still a poor country, but it is developing and it's been developing very quickly since those elections in 1993. But one of the reasons that it's been developing very quickly is because the Chinese continue to support Cambodia. And in fact, Cambodia is really seen by many people as like an extra province of China. It's like considered the 31st province of China that really the Chinese invest a lot of money in Cambodia in exchange for Cambodian loyalty. And now the Chinese basically use Cambodia for their resources, to exploit resources, and consider it part of basically an extension of their own territory. They set up their own hotels and casinos and restaurants. It's a place where Chinese businessmen go to start businesses or, or just go on vacation and relax. And the Khmer people who live there are really seeing this as too great a price for the benefits of Chinese investment. So that's another thing to consider. Again, also many Khmer people will also point to the continuing influence of Vietnam in Cambodian economy and society. But in my opinion, it's less obvious than the Chinese influence and really domination of Cambodian economy and politics and society. It doesn't really affect Khmer culture. The Khmer people don't learn to practice Chinese, you know, style of religion or of Buddhism or even, you know, much of the food or certainly the language or any of the lifestyle ways of being, but certainly it's under its economic power. So that's what Cambodia is today. There's a growing middle class. There's a growing elite. There's a growing uh, disparity between the rich and the poor. The poor are just staying poor and the rich are getting richer, just like in the United States. But there's a growing middle class, unlike the United States. There's a growing middle class of people who are also benefiting from all of this economic growth. But there's a large part of the population that really has remained poor and unchanged and really powerless in the countryside. So that's what I would say in a quick summary Cambodia is today. Okay. All right. So I think that basically got through most of my questions. Uh, Was there anything else that you wanted to add, like in general? I think you covered everything very well, Donna. Oh, thank you. Okay, cool. All right. Okay. Um, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I just want to say thank you. This has been super informative and very interesting. 
like I'm just mind blown right now. I'm not gonna lie. I appreciate your curiosity and your interest. Thank you again for listening. If you like this episode, please share it with someone who will like it too. And please rate, review, and follow this podcast. Oh, and don't forget to follow us on Instagram at the What Even Is Podcast, so you can tell us a topic that makes you wonder, what even is that?